You're listening to I Quit My Job, a podcast about songwriting, with your hosts, Travis Reitzma and Derek Harrison. I quit my job. I quit my job. I quit my job. I'm free today. You're listening to I Quit My Job. Today, our guest is Kelly Mr. Chill Hoppy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did this interview. Yeah, uh, Travis did this interview solo. A couple months ago in uh, his lovely home in East Windsor. Very and nice. He was very, uh, he gave me libations. Of and, what sort? Uh, um, uh, well, actually, no, sorry, he didn't give me libations. That, I guess that implies alcohol, doesn't it? Yeah, very, very just, strongly Yeah, no, it does. Alcohol. Okay, so libations is not the word <laughs> I'm looking for. He gave me um, very good coffee. Okay. He he made he pressed himself. Oh my god! I think he even uh, roasted the beans himself and harvested them from Costa Rica because that's hmm. the type of man he is. Sounds like he had a nice day. Yeah, it was great. Travis is here with me in Toronto. Yep. For the weekend, doing some podcasting, and, mm-hmm. and uh, so we thought we'd take a swing at the dual intro. Yeah, how's it going so far? Besides my elaborate lies about coffee, it's <laughs> <laughs> fabrications. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to say that the first, uh, first and really only time I've personally worked with Kelly Hoppy was on the great lost Travis Reisman record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would actually love to find those tracks. I think, um, I think Eric probably still has them. Oh, Eric Walden, who recorded it. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, the lost, uh, the lost album of songs that are now mostly Diane Motel songs. Yeah, uh, at least the good ones. So. Um, and yeah, we he, we brought him in for a day, and and he he was gracious enough to to record on um, on Kinsey's cabin, right? And, and then North, uh, oh no, not Kinsey's cabin, sorry, Northumberland yeah. County. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is this sort of dark minor chord bluesy thing about people eating children in Northumberland County. Yeah, it's totally he, accurate. And um, yeah, he he killed it. He stayed there for I think two hours. He did as many takes as he could possibly do in two hours. <laughs> And said, "You just choose whichever ones you want." Right. And he made sure that every for every single one, he did something something a little different, a little bit different. And he would explain what he did that was different, so that we would know. Mm-hmm. If you want this, here's this. Here's if this you want one. this, here's this. It was it was. He's I mean, he's a professional. He's That's been cool. he's been doing it a long time. So that was like six years ago. Yep, somewhere in that area. Five years ago, um, when I was still in Windsor. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, you also started working on another album with Johnny West. Yeah. And then just like... Abandoned the other thing. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> well, um... I've played with Travis for a long time and never been on any of his recordings. And the only time I actually went and played on some of his recordings... <laughs> it didn't get released. Those ones he just chose not to release. That's totally because you were on them. No. Um, no, it, it, was, it was a combination of things. Uh, number one, and probably most importantly, is that I was broke. I was mm. really broke. I'm always broke, but I, I was really broke. And Extra broke. I couldn't afford to pay the producer that I had started working with, Eric Walton, who's a friend of mine, but he did need to be paid. Yeah. And I couldn't afford to pay him. And so it just kind of stalled and didn't really go anywhere for a really long time. And uh, there How was, close was it to? Uh, I have to go back and listen, but I, not tracking-wise, not terribly far away from being done. Mm. The problem was that we had a few session musicians in. Like, there was many problems with it. Um, I really liked the songs, most of them anyway. But uh, we, we brought in this violin player, and we paid him. And he, you know, he, had been, he had come very highly recommended by someone who I trust. And I was like, okay, well, he's a good violin player because this person says so. And I'm not going to name names, but he was terrible. Really? Uh, 
and we paid him because he he did what we asked him to do, but it wasn't usable. Hmm. Like he really, it wasn't good. And I mean, we'd even sent him the arrangements. I had someone, you know, transcribe and says that this is what we want you to play on it. And um, yeah, just oh. it, it just completely didn't go anywhere. It, it was just bad. And so, and there was a lot of like Eric and I were fighting at the time a little yeah. bit, just about philosophy of how to record the record and what we wanted out of it. And um, it just became this big frustrating ordeal. And I just decided I had written these uh, this other batch of songs. For outside the factory gates, which I, I I recorded with Johnny and released, and I liked those songs better too, mm. for the most part. Or at least I liked the album better, and I got more enthusiastic about that. And so I just went and started working with Johnny, and that's the album that I released instead. Hmm. So I don't know. And so, now, like I say, the good parts of that album are now Diamond Motel, Motel songs, songs, and they're being recorded so with Diamond Motel. Okay. So, All yeah. right. That's what you wanted to ask me about. That's what I wanted to ask you. About. <laughs> the last album. Yeah, but no, Kelly. Um, yeah, Kelly was on that obviously, and I've known Kelly for a long time. I think we talk about it in the in the podcast. Um, but he gave me harmonica lessons um, years ago, a few of them, just mm-hmm. to get me started. Mm-hmm. And it, like, I, in probably a total of forty five minutes, he completely like taught me how to play the, the instrument. Like, I can <laughs> competently play the instrument on stage because yeah. of those forty five minutes. Yeah. Uh, that he taught me because he was really good at it. Obviously, if I had stuck with the lessons longer, um, you know, I just didn't want to make him do it for free. And uh, he, yeah, he was amazing. He's just that he's a very professional guy, mm-hmm. you know, and unbelievable harp player. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's get to the interview. All right. This is Travis Reitzma's talk with Kelly Hoppy. Uh, the song we're going to play is, uh, I believe it's called Tired All the Time. And it's on Mr. Chill and the Witnesses' 2007 release, Cold Testament.
things things are good i mean um uh, in my big sugar world at least it's uh we've been going really hard i would say the last you know we, we reformed in 2010 after our our, hi- our hiatus uh, preceding that but uh it just seems to have picked up some momentum and that's got a lot to do with us um getting over to europe and yeah. playing shows you yeah. know and so that's uh and we've also uh, you know, I don't say we, yeah, I guess we, in a way, not that was, we wanted to make an acoustic record at some point in our careers. And we did, mm-hmm. uh, we did one uh, called Yardstyle. It came out a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Great and that's, a, oh, thank you. Yeah, really great. Thank you. And that has also given us, in terms of, again, when to talk about being busy, it's almost like another band for audiences that we certainly get big sugar fans, but we mm-hmm. noticed we got people who had never been to a big sugar show before, which from a decibel point of view is, yeah. is the opposite yeah. <laughs> of the acoustic <laughs> thing. And, uh, but it almost allowed us to, at least so far in Canada where we've toured, uh, the art style show. And we did that last year as well, mm-hmm. um, to, to really fill up our calendar playing that way. Yeah. And, uh, and as I say, opening up a territory like Europe, um, has just made us all the more busy. So it's been really, really great. We've mm-hmm. been really busy and making uh, making Big Sugar records other than the acoustic one too. You know, we just put out an album last uh, late late summer, mm-hmm. early fall called Calling All the Youth, yeah. you know, which we're still, in a sense, touring on. So yeah, it's been mm-hmm. pretty busy. That's really great. Yeah, yeah. I, I find we, we talked to a lot of people on here that, uh, you know, they go over to Europe for the first time and and it's just so much different. The, the, the live music experience over there is a very mm. different thing. Do you find that with, at, at your level with Big Sugar as well? Yeah, we. I, I, I would agree with it. I mean, you know, in a general sense, people are, you know, if they go to see rock shows, they're enthusiastic people. Um, and yeah. they are certainly that in Europe. And maybe all, sometimes even, I don't know, it's interesting. They can be really more attentive in terms of you get a chance to talk to them after a show. Mm-hmm. Um, they... I think because of, you know, you seem somewhat exotic because you're, you know, from a few thousand miles away mm-hmm. and um, they do their homework. They really want to know about the band and, uh, and you know, look, check into influences and mm-hmm. who the songwriters are and what, you know, what, what they do and how they work together. All, the, all things like that. And one other thing I would mention is the venues are, uh, how will I say this? They're, they're... Um, <laughs> Without coming off as insulting toward yeah, I don't want to insult venues. anybody, guys. I don't want to insult <laughs> venues over here, because what I'm getting at is there's here. I'll just give you an example, and it's a really you know I think it's maybe it's a world famous club. It certainly is in Europe. It's it's quite has quite a great 
reputation. It's called the Ancien Bel- uh, Belgique mm-hmm. in Brussels. And the catering in that venue is like a great restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be, you know, in any city in North America or Europe, you'd be, boy, that, that meal would cost you a lot of money. I mean, it's just well-prepared mm-hmm. um, and um, of a really high quality. And the venues are really clean. The mm-hmm. dressing rooms are like hotel rooms, like nice, ho- like not always, but um, even if they're modest in terms of what they, their, their accoutrements, they're, um, yeah, they're just really clean. Yeah. Um, and it seems a less... Um, in a way, it seems in a, a, a less rock and roll in a way, but it's it's nice to <laughs> to have a dressing room where you don't worry about putting your clothes on that hanger on by the door yeah. because or what <laughs> many other reasons we could go into or what those reasons might be. Um, yeah, so that I noticed. I yeah. just I just found that they they treat live music and maybe in a sense they treat the arts. Yeah, I was just with say an that. incredible amount yeah, of respect. Yeah. I mean, as you may know, you might surmise if you don't even know it directly is that i mean the, those countries uh in europe many of them you know they from the government on down government mm-hmm. and private industry know the value of the arts yeah and exactly I, I think, even even if you have more conservative governments in uh, over there exactly like i know in in germany right now it's a pretty conservative government by their standards of course mm-hmm. and uh they're still they still invest in the arts at a level that north america it just seems uh, you know, really out of character for North America. So, I mean, and I've heard too from other people, sort of lower lower level than you, that would go and just do the cafe and bar circuit in, mm. in Europe, that it's the same way, that people go specifically to see live music. They don't even necessarily care who's playing. They just go yeah. because you just need to go see the arts. And we're here, it's more event-based. Like, you're going to go see a band that you like. Yeah. So if if you're not known, you're just starting out. It takes years to get a foothold because you've got to bring people out, and nobody's just going to wander into the bar and listen, you know. Right. I. I you know what? I. I think as a general rule, that's true. I. Th- and I think it stems from what we were just talking about that um, there's there's a generate you know over many generations they've inculcated if that's the right word um, this this sense of of uh, appreciation for the arts and supporting it. Therefore, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if you it, maybe they should go hand in hand, but. I think you're right. In North America, sometimes it's it doesn't have that same cachet. In in general, again, mm-hmm. I mean, there, as you know, there'd be pockets all over North America where you could find that sort of attitude. But um, yeah. it seems to be uh, something that governments, uh, city and provincial or state or or, or national, mm-hmm. you know, federal, that that's it's a relatively new thing to be talking about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and be, to be truthful, that private industry sees the value in it you yeah know, the tourism industry for example yeah do you think that that's always um do you think that's always a good thing to have that kind of investment or do you think that say in north america it's more of a you really have to love it you really have to want to do it because it's going to be really tough there's no you know it's more mm. cutthroat capitalist in that way i guess do you, do you think that there's there's a side of it where Maybe the not investing in it, the not caring about it as much over here, makes those people who do eventually rise to the top all that much better. <laughs> or do you think it? Do you think it? Because that's not. It's, yeah, I, I I'm playing devil's advocate because yeah. you know that I don't think like that necessarily. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> it almost gives uh, somebody over here, an artist or a band or whatever, uh, maybe a little tougher skin because it's just, mm-hmm. it's just, and that can be a good thing, I guess. You it's know? more rock and roll. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Whereas. Um, 
but I think it. I think we would all benefit from it over here. And I think, yeah. like I say, I think I see signs of it um, in the last few years in North America, where, uh, like I say, private is- industry finds out that oh, it's it's, geez, look at the, you know, look at the sales we have in our our particular niche of of what we're you know as a as somebody putting out consumable goods Mm -hmm. by having music associated with it or other things too, not just music, but um, we're starting to see the value of it, but it's been there for generations in Europe. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in Europe, it's a hell of a lot more possible probably. I mean, I'm not speaking from experience to, to be a career artist and that it's a, there's a little bit more of an infrastructure there that if you prove yourself as a good Uh. artist, you don't necessarily have to, have a side job. You can do that as your as your one hundred percent thing. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody in the music, uh, let's call it the music industry in general, has been affected by what was once a, a quite reliable revenue stream, which is sales of mechanical sales of your music and and otherwise. Um, so it's, it's affected European musicians, I'm sure, is just as, as much as it's affected us in a negative sense that that revenue's gone down. But what you're referring to too, I I, I think at the same time. Um, they can, you know, from a live experience anyways, generate really good income. And you know what really does help them also naturally, um, is maybe stating the obvious, is that their territory, if we're talking Western Europe at least, their territory is, doesn't, you know, bands don't have to cover, mm-hmm. you know, play a gig in Toronto and play yeah. in Winnipeg the next night. We're there, there's a huge population and mm-hmm. it's almost like the Northeast United States. Yeah. And so that, you know, at least it, it has a, a, a positive impact on transportation costs, yeah, yeah. right? Well, that's one of the big struggles in Canada, right? And why yeah. it's so tough to make it as a musician or an artist in this country, because yeah. the distance between populations is just so vast. And, yeah. we, and we live in the area of the country that is the most populated. Yeah, as far as Southern Ontario goes. it still yeah. takes hours to get to the next city, yeah. you know? So, so there's, yeah, they have it, you know, they have a built-in advantage, you know? But, and mm-hmm. I think I, that... But going back to it, I think just the fact that artists are of all types are are supported more from a cultural point of view uh, in terms of people going buying tickets to see their shows or buying their wares or whatever it is, it mm-hmm. it it really helps. Yeah. Yeah. So you you exclusively do music. You don't you don't have a, a another outside job. Right. Yeah. Um, when did you make that transition? I made that transition in 1986. You I, know the exact year. Yeah, I was. <laughs> what would the exact month be? I guess it would be. It was in the late spring. It was when uh, Brian Mulroney came to power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I worked for um, the People's Corporation, as, no, as Brian the, called it, the CBC. The CBC. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I had been thinking about it, regardless of you know, totally, totally apart from what happened with the. Uh, Progressive Conservative Revolution, I'll call it, um, because he was swept into power with a huge majority. But um, that was when. And I had been playing music part-time in a kind of serious fashion while I worked as a film editor at the CBC Mm -hmm. uh, up until 1986. Started at the CBC, coming out of university in 77, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, And, you know, came to music. I wasn't a professional musician when I was, for example, when I started working in 1977 at the CBC, but playing the harmonica had become a really serious hobby of mine, and then it morphed into doing television work. I, through the CBC, I ended up playing on country music shows and mm-hmm. Tommy Hunter show eventually. And hmm. But then I, <clears throat> that really gave me confidence. Yeah. 
um, to play in a band setting. And then I started playing in bands, uh, one band in particular called the Dougals. Um, mm-hmm. And we were at the term, I don't remember the term existing back then. But we were definitely, we would call a roots music band. We, yeah. Um, and, which, and that, in the, which in the 80s is a its own weird thing, I think. Yeah. Like, there wasn't a lot of that. It definitely wasn't like a, a prominent time for that type of music. Yeah, it's kind of funny. We never thought we'd play anywhere. <laughs> we thought we're just kind of doing this in a basement because it's a lot of fun. And somebody said, why don't you audition at this bar? And we did. Mm-hmm. And we thought, okay, that would, you know. And there was a time from the first year, I think, we'd play one gig or, or two nights at one bar. And then we didn't play for six months. Yeah. And then it just, it was weird. It just caught on we started doing gigs at the university of windsor and there was a group of folks there who thought what we were doing was was cool and, and mm-hmm. liked our music and it just ended up we were playing every weekend eventually after that yeah you know and that went on for several years and it, that gave me more confidence you mm-hmm. know to play music full-time eventually so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so let's go back a bit because actually um you were, I think, were you in one of the original communication studies classes at the University of Windsor? Yes, I was. I would, th- yeah, my, I think I, the department, because mm, I, I should, I, I'm going to, so I think I'll be accurate with this. My sister, two mm-hmm. years older than me, um, was in the first graduating class. Okay. So that was like 71, like 71 was the first year of that graduating class. So like a 74. Um, yeah, geez, now t- I can... She and I got to remember that she. I think my sister went. What did they used to call that? She didn't. She obviously an Ontario student. Went to high school here in Windsor, but mm-hmm. she left after grade twelve. What used to call that? Prelim. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Prelim. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that exists anymore. No, no. I don't think so. No. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I'm two years dip in age, but I went through grade thirteen. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. So I was probably in the second or third graduate. Yeah. But I was. I, I guess what you're saying is, I think I when I started the University of Windsor in the fall of '71, the department. Started, just started. Yeah, yeah just yeah. started. Exactly. Yeah, somewhere around that time. Because I'm actually a graduate of that program. I have, right. I have my undergrad and my master's degree in that program. And uh, we had I've known you for probably eight to ten years yeah. at this point. And uh, I remember I got this job archiving with mm. uh, the communications department where I, I basically was t- tasked to go into this room mm. in Landon Tower where they had boxes and boxes and boxes of files. Hmm. Endless amounts of files. And they said, you have to organize these by date, by topic, by council meeting, because it's all council meeting minutes, these sorts of boring right. things. Yeah. And I remember sifting through them, and it's like the most mind-numbingly boring job of all I time. Think so. Yeah. so I have them spread out on this table, and I, I'm looking at them, and I see along the top of each masthead of this one folder, K-Hoppy, K-Hoppy, K-Hoppy. And I was, yeah. I was like, wow, I wonder if that's Kelly Hoppy. And I remember asking you about it at the time, and you're like, oh, yeah, I think I was on some council or something like that. And so whatever it would say, attendees, your name your name would be there. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so that's how I found out that you had actually taken and had done that. Yes, you did tell me about that. Yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was sort of a roundabout way. But yeah, I've, I've known you for probably since about 2005. I would say, somewhere, yeah. 2005, 2006. Yep. Which I guess is 10 years now. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the Dougals, mm-hmm. you, you started doing that, and it started to get more serious. Uh, at this point, you're still working at the CBC. Mm-hmm. Are you touring outside of Windsor, or is it just a, a Windsor no, thing? No, the Dougals, yeah, we were, yeah, the Windsor, Windsor area. But no, we didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't go on the road. Everybody in the band, including me, had, you know, had serious mm-hmm. day jobs. Um, so, but we, like I was telling you a few minutes ago, it, it just, um, it was kind of nice because... Um, and I and if I you know I wasn't totally unaware of it once we started playing, you know there was some artists like I mean you know Stevie Ray Vaughan, mm-hmm. 
you know, a blues guitar player, obviously, that's what he is, um, was, um, you know, he had, he had national, international popularity, uh, the Stray Cats, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of a neo-rockabilly band. Mm-hmm. So um, to have a blues revival yeah, around the mid-80s exactly. or so. Yeah. And that, that somehow, I mean, it's funny, people used to come up and ask us to do songs by those bands, and we, we were doing songs that those bands might have been influenced by, but we yeah. did. I mean, we love playing Eddie Cochran and mm-hmm. Gene Vincent and Elvis Presley mm-hmm. and, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, um, Sam Cooke, mm-hmm. you know, um, Wilson Pickett, anything, you know, what the, it was, it was really the music that everybody in the band grew up with. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and Chicago style blues, they were all, it was, a, it was quite a mix of things we did, um, which again, almost, I thought sometimes that was kind of confusing to our audience because it'd be a set of what we would do would be, you know, little Walter Muddy Waters, Helen Wolf, mm-hmm. but then you'd hear this, you know, rave up rockabilly stuff and, yeah. and some great soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my cousin, Tom Hogarth, that's still a great singer today. And he was a guitar player, singer in the band and he had an incredible soulful voice which we took quite you know a lot of advantage mm-hmm. of his of his talent and uh, so that's what you get in, in any given night any one of our shows you know so mm-hmm. but it seemed to work for us so were you a writer in that at all or did you no i don't yeah none we we were strictly a band that did covers okay we i think we thought about and not that i i think of myself much as i do some writing but um I, and i wasn't doing it back then but I think we all felt a mission to kind of educate an audience that was really only a half generation at the most mm-hmm. younger than us. We were in our late 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. And, um, but because there was, seemed to be a revival and an interest in music forms from the period we were playing, mm-hmm. it felt, I think, you know, without getting on a soapbox but it, um, about it, you know, it was nice to educate an audience yeah. and we yeah. had an audience it was a funny thing there's uh people who you know i can i know by name now still seeing the city who were in university at the mm-hmm. time who would talk to me sometimes they get to the show before we would play mm-hmm. and talk to me about they started checking out the people i've yeah. just mentioned you know yeah and that just made you feel yeah great inside that we were educating yeah an audience that you know, certainly they had their musical heroes from, the, you know, a new wave that was going on mm-hmm. at the time and, you know, punk, post-punk and well, mm-hmm. post-punk was almost starting, I guess. But, you know, they, they might have been fans of The Clash. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, it's interesting because... They, they were digging what we were doing. Yeah, I, I think uh, Ron, Ron and I talked about this not too long ago, actually, how... Because <laughs> we were both, I guess, broadly considered contemporary folk musicians and uh so a lot of our influences go back quite a ways now as well to people like john prine and and phil oaks and these sorts of people and now you have these people who are suddenly really into folk music because of mumford and sons and Mm. and old crow medicine show and sort of this folk revival that's been happening over the last probably five to ten years oh yeah and i i mean it's not some of that stuff is really great but others it's it's just kind of like well yeah but you can tell where they're getting that and you should be going back and listening to this older stuff because that's where they're getting it and uh, so it is kind of cool to see that uh, that sort of generational thing where people are finding the new stuff first and they go, oh, I really like Old Crow Medicine Show. And then you tell them about someone like John Prine and they go back and listen to that and mm-hmm. they go, oh, yeah, I see what this is coming from. And it's that, that sort of encyclopedic walk back. I know I went through it. I think every musician's probably gone through it. Uh, yeah, I guess you do. I mean, and I, I'd agree with that. I, I mm-hmm. think that um, those that are prolific writers too, you can, you know... Um, you get you hear them interviewed or see you know their their interviews in print and they'll mm-hmm. tell you um, or you can see their interview on YouTube 
but you know you can they'll tell you what their influences are and it's you know everybody stands on the shoulders of somebody mm-hmm. else you know of course, like that's yeah. that's kind of the way art works i guess but that's why when people talk about music being completely <coughs> original never heard before uh, it's sort of weird because if it wa- if that were the case, you wouldn't be able to listen to it. You wouldn't have a reference system to put yeah. it in. I think that's the problem with someone like like Captain Beefheart, for instance, and why it's so hard for him to get any kind of mainstream success, even though he's like this brilliant musician, is because he's a step removed from a frame of reference, and people people can't make that jump quite so easily. Mm. Um, Even though he has his influences, he does. You know. Of course, he does. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of like a mainstream audience following, like there there is oh, that, right. that yeah. disconnect there. And I feel like if somebody were to come up with something completely new and unheard before, you wouldn't know what to do with it. You wouldn't know where to put it. It probably wouldn't sound good to you in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, I, I guess the only sort of argument against that, I, I'm trying to think of an artist that was just so unique that their music, and I can't think of one. <laughs> um, well, because even if you think back to like the days of the Beatles and the Kinks and the Rolling Stones where that sort of was coming up, they had their influences too, you know, and, and like huge influences. Right. But people sort of saw that, mainly white audiences saw that as like, this is brand new music that's never been heard before. Exactly. Meanwhile, it had been heard before. It's just... Sure. And, and that's, <laughs> that, you know, and that's actually, you know, I, I grew up at that time and I, mm-hmm. I remember, and that's exactly what happened for me. When I heard um, Roll Over Beethoven, I hadn't heard Chuck Berry do it. Mm-hmm. And... I was old enough that I at least could go look at the liner notes on the Beatles record and go, Chuck Berry. And my older brother had Chuck Berry records. I'm only 10 years old. So, so you, you had the younger brother effect. Yeah. That's and great. I just, yeah, <laughs> I just went and he had like, oh, and it was called A Dozen Berries or something like that. The artwork on his record had like a bowl full of strawberries or something like that. It was mm-hmm. on, and it was really cool because it was on Checker or Chess Records, which I became, a, you know, bought their records by the dozens just a few years later. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, the Beatles sounded brand new. Meanwhile, they were basing their whole thing. Mm-hmm. And even their writing, um, it d- reflected it too, mm-hmm. on great American traditional roots music, mm-hmm. uh, like like rock, and you know, like the 50s rock, rock and roll, mm-hmm. which really is a folk music to me yeah. anyway. Yeah. And, um, but also... Um, like there was a, there's a really great sort of blues influence in their music. I mean, yeah, but it just it just sounded so fresh coming from them. And if you weren't, and that's getting back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. I love educating somebody about something like that. I yeah. was educated about it. I mean, I just mm-hmm. had to go to my brother's record collection, but still, you had the advantage. Of I had an advantage, sibling. and yeah. I, it would have been taking me a little bit longer to yeah. find it out, right? Yeah. See, I didn't have an older sibling, so it took me a long time to find that stuff. Right. It was yeah. really, really when I started hanging around the music scene, where people would be like, "Oh, go listen to this." Whereas before that, you know, I didn't have that older influence, so yeah. I couldn't get the the cool music. My parents definitely weren't listening to it. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So you're playing in the Dougals. Yep. Uh, we're in the mid '80s. Yeah, Brian, yeah. Mul- Brian Mulroney is gaining steam. Yeah, he, yeah <laughs> the conservative he, movement is gaining steam in Canada. It sure is. You're starting sure to see was. the writing on the wall at the CBC. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, when what was it that made you decide music is what I'm going to do? Um, just that it was it, it was uh, that there was no really great logic to it. That's <laughs> what I was about to say, or I'm saying. It, I don't know. It's it's. I was just very passionate about it. Yeah. Um, and. I don't normally have that kind of confidence. It's funny, I don't think I've had that kind of confidence for years that I must have had then. Um, and 
I had, it, it did remind me, even though this had been going on for about eight or 10 years now, before I played the harmonica in public, mm-hmm. I played the harmonica every day for when I was working at the CBC for probably two, three years. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of crazy. I mean, I, I, had, that's, I didn't totally shut off my friends. I had, <laughs> yeah. I had friends, but I would come home from work every day. Mm-hmm. On my lunch hour, I lived close to the station, and I would jump in my car and not eat. I would go home mm-hmm. and listen to little Walter and Helen Wolf and mm-hmm. try and figure this stuff out in the harmonica. My editing shift would end at 6 p.m. after the news is over, my film editing shift, and I'd go back home. I would eat. Mm-hmm. But soon I was playing the harmonica, and the next thing I knew it was one in the morning. Yeah, And I did that pretty much five, six days a week for two or three years. I think a lot, I think a lot of musicians do that. I did the same thing. Uh, I grew up in a house that wasn't all that encouraging of playing music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did have a guitar, and I tried to clumsily play it, but often got told not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I tried to learn in high school, in like the hallways of my high school, playing guitar. And it's, that obviously has its own barriers. And so it wasn't until I got to university, I started living on my own, more or less, that I, I really got into it. And so I was about you know, 19, 20 years old. And I did the same thing. It would be like, I was so obsessed with the idea of learning how to just even play the basics. It was like, I'm still yeah. not, a, I'm still a strummer for the most part. I don't really, you know, do a lot, but, uh, I, I became obsessed with it for about a year, two years where every waking free hour that I had, I was playing the guitar. I was trying to learn, mm-hmm. you know, Radiohead songs or, or that sort of thing. Right. Just sitting there playing them over and over again until I had every possible note and chord down. So I feel like a lot of musicians go through that yeah. that sort of initial like oh my god this is so incredible it feels so good to make these sounds right you know you just become obsessed with it yeah and and I I think it was I found it so mysterious I think from playing the harmonica and that the harmonica is there's a lot going on in the harmonica inside mm-hmm. the mouth cavity yeah <laughs> where like um if you're a sighted person you can touch a keyboard and touch a fretboard mm-hmm. and see it the harmonica had this extra layer of... Yeah. How's the sound even made? It's all feel. Yeah, yeah. It was like I was trying to do bird calls. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like the people... I'm always amazed those people can mimic a bird yeah. of some exotic <laughs> bird. It, it was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And I loved the mystery of it. And anytime I would decipher the mystery a little... And I was self-taught. I, mm-hmm. Back then, there wasn't many good teaching books or anything on the harmonic kind of a niche instrument to some degree and mm-hmm. and and getting back to like what I was doing when now in my early 30s that was my early 20s in my mm-hmm. early 30s making this decision to go play music full time I still had that um, thirst mm-hmm. and and uh, and by playing live um, it seemed not enough to me to just play two or three times a week in my in my hometown. I wanted yeah. to, I wanted, you wanted to, to do more. Wanted to do more. I wanted yeah. to get out and see where that would take me. Yeah, you know. So you were how old? How thirty three? You were thirty. So you're pretty late to the game. Really. Oh yeah, you're I was. I mean, yeah. Even on an instrument, from the point of view of learning an instrument, I didn't. You know, I I played terribly. I played. I took keyboard lessons when I was a little kid. I mean, mm-hmm. I just had no. So I'm really like even. I always envy people that started playing when they're 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Or younger, Me too. Because yeah. I just go. It's like, I'll never be that good. Yeah, because like, <laughs> I'm starting so late, yeah. you know? So, well, you, yeah, give, but, you give me hope then. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I, I often tell people, uh, students or, or otherwise, that I have of mine that, uh, wow, so you're 40, so what? Start start yeah, at it. Start I mean, doing it. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so 
And when I was 33 is when I decided to play music full time. Mm-hmm. And wh- so what was it that you were doing that allowed you to make that decision? Like, was there, were you in a band that was about to, you well, thought was about to break big or you saw no, an opportunity to make money or <laughs> none, none of those things. None of those um, things. <laughs> I mean, I, the Dougals still existed. We were, yeah. we'd been around for a few years now at this point. Now, obviously it was going to be problematic because a lot of the guys in the band, that wouldn't be their goal is to play music full time. Mm-hmm. So I decided to shift and also, I become more and more interested in playing blues music for whatever, you know, that umbrella holds, which I think holds a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, styles and sub-styles yeah. and, and things. And you can, you can branch into anything, <clears throat> rock and roll, the country, to folk, you, right. you can go all over the place with it. But I, I decided to really focus on that, where the Dougals were, like I was telling you before, a bit of an amalgam of rockabilly mm-hmm. and soul and, you know, things like that, mm-hmm. and blues. And I thought, I really want to explore... The, a little more folk stare that, that kind of emphasizes the instrument I play too mm-hmm. even though I was all now playing saxophone actually I forgot about that but I'm mm-hmm. starting to play tenor saxophone and and that also said to me the, the leap was going to be or the, certainly the work I had ahead of me was to put a band together people like minded in my hometown I would mm-hmm. think that would be the best thing to do they should all be from Windsor mm-hmm. so we're close to each other to rehearse <laughs> and find people that would want to go out and do that without really you know, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to eat? How are we going to live? Well, I don't really know, but let's... And there was a circuit. I mean, I yeah. knew, I was well aware of, uh, in southern Ontario, or at least all the way up to Ottawa, there was, um, London, Ontario had a club called the Fire Hall, and there was uh, Albert's Hall in Toronto, mm-hmm. and several other clubs in Toronto, too, that, that would book a touring band. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Rainbow in Ottawa, Pop the Gator in Kitchener, before that, it was actually known as uh, Pop the Gator. Uh, is preceded by, owned by the same person, a guy named Glenn Smith, a really uh, great blues promoter and, and venue operator. And, uh, yeah, his place was called the Hoodoo Lounge. Mm-hmm. And, it, and before that, he was doing shows at the Legion in Kitchener. He morphed into doing a weekend club, and then he opened up a bigger space called Pop the Gator. So there was there was places to play. Yeah, and and there would be sort of one-off gigs, and oh, I, sh- I should not forget, of course, playing the soup kitchen in Detroit. I, mm-hmm. I'd always, I'd been going to the soup kitchen for years to see, you know, just just some incredible uh, roster of, uh, of legendary blues artists from around uh, the world, especially from around the United States. Mm-hmm. And but they also book local local area bands, um, and you might get an opening slot at the soup kitchen too. Hmm. So there was there was like a handful of places to play, and where I couldn't really play very much was in Windsor. Yeah, there really wasn't a place. Um, hmm. We got the one-off gig every once in a while, but that changed in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just you just took the plunge. You just said, "This is something I'm passionate about. I'm going to at least give it a shot." Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. There wasn't like, oh, I really want to. Well, I certainly had wanted to be as successful as possible. Yeah, because, yeah. You well, know, I think it, that's probably why you were successful. It sounds like you were sort of obsessed with being, with making it work in a way. Yeah, and, and increase, you know, working on my whatever talent I had, making, you know, if I'm doing it full time, mm-hmm. you know, I was doing like doing the math. Like, well, now I don't have to go to work yeah. for eight hours. So uh, now you can practice for six and a half and yeah. book shows for the other hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, and I just wanted to see where that would lead, and I just. It wasn't like I thought, well, this is it for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. too. I mean, there was sort of a, you know, a vague, you know, I'll give this a shot. Yeah, I mean, you, and you had experience in media, and you could probably figured you could always go back to that if you had to. Yeah, even though I found out soon enough that technology changed. I was a <laughs> film editor, and film, oh, yeah. film is... Uh, 
about 10 years later, it's like the steam engine now, I think, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, and so that, (laughs) that kind of closed the door for me. Um, once, uh, the technology change happened, you know, I'm certainly aware of it. My Mm -hmm. wife still worked at the CPC and my sister. So I was well aware of the changes that were quite rapid actually Mm -hmm. in, in the technology. And I was leaving the skill that so-called skill that I have, uh, you know, in the dust in a way. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, so I just, I, I didn't have a really sharp or, or broad, you know, into the future look. It was just like, let's go. Let's just see let's what just happens. And I was able to put a band together, which was yeah. kind of actually amazed me. In well, what was that band? It was called the Windsor Dukes. Okay, Windsor it, Dukes. Yeah, I have a, I have one of your albums somewhere, I think, or something. A I have cassette, something. Maybe. Yeah, there's something that. Um, no, it was. You know what it was? Uh, somebody had put it up online. Wow. Recently, ish. And by recently, I'm meaning in the last ten years. And I remember Ron sent it to me. He sent me an email with these files, and he said, "This is this is one of Kelly's older bands." Wow, really? And I should I've kind I of been collect them. collect those and, and yeah, they, they weren't good quality. They did them? not sound like good quality. Like <laughs> they were they were really hard to hear. And I think it was very clear they'd been converted from something. Oh, okay, um, that that as well. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was, it's funny. I mean, yeah, I just. Uh, so that was who? There's okay. Oh, yeah, so who was in the band? Yeah, I mean the band. Yeah. Um, it's easy to go through, I guess. It'll be some names change, or not names changing, uh, but mm-hmm. certain people coming in and out. When I started the band, Gordy Johnson was in the band, mm-hmm. uh, who I'd just met Gordy just a few months earlier through a, a mutual friend. A guy became a really close mutual friend and was a really close friend of Gordy's. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and Kevin Peterson mm-hmm. um, played was our drummer. And Murray Nosenchuk who played bass in the Dougals. Okay. He he decided to give this a shot, even though he's, was still, he still hung on to his day job. He was smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I feel like I'm... Yeah, it's just weird, because there was, there was somebody else. Mm. And I can't think of it. I mean, the first two or three gigs we did were kind of... You know, it was kind of like when I started the Dougals, it's like, okay, I can't get arrested doing this. And we didn't play... Did a gig out in Leamington or Six mm-hmm. Nighter? It's you know the IT or some bar out in Leamington, Seacliff, maybe I forget. Oh, that's in Kingsville. I forget. Mm-hmm. And um, but Gordy left the band short. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm well, of course. Here's what I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting Doc Wright. Okay. When we had a so we had a five piece band in the beginning because it's always a quartet after the next few months. Mm-hmm. So it was Doc on guitar, great uh, blues guitar player, and. Um, he, in a sense, was mentoring Gordy because Gordy was kind of new to the idiom itself. Mm-hmm. And Gordy was like, I don't know, Gordy was 20, 21, something like oh, that. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah he, he was, is a little bit, quite a bit younger than you. Yeah. yeah. And he, um, um, so he kind of mentored Gordy and, and Gordy was picking up things quickly. And then what happened is, and it happened within a few months, maybe, geez, just a handful, you know, it might have been four months. Gordy got an offer to go to Toronto and play bass, which mm-hmm. is his original instrument. And he's mm-hmm. a great bass player, and he was a great bass player even then, and play bass for uh, kind of a pop reggae act, okay. a recording act, actually, too, yeah. a guy named Errol Starr. I think the guy had a record deal with A&M or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was a great opportunity, and of course he had to take it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, he was looking at this ragtag blues band and going, <laughs> no, we were... We were we got along famously as friends, but um, yeah, he he. Um, so he left, and Doc was so accomplished as I came. I only got to know Doc that year, mm-hmm. um, but he was so accomplished. Uh, we thought 
bass, drums, guitar, harmonica, saxophone, me. And I did mm-hmm. all the singing. Yeah. Um, but it, we went as a quartet. It saved us a little bit more money, mm-hmm. too. There's not as many people to pay by one. Mm-hmm. And um, and shoot, uh, soon thereafter, though, um, I think, yeah. Um, we, and Kevin Peterson left the band, too, actually. I think to just go play with another band. So I got... Um, uh, I auditioned some folks, and I auditioned this young drummer uh, named Kevin Venny. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible uh, uh, skill level. Even at the age at that time, he would have been he would have been twenty one, twenty two, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, he didn't know much about the you know the idiom, mm-hmm. but was a, you know a great student and yeah. and uh, listened to Doc and I, I guess you could yeah. put it that way. And and so there so that was kind of the lineup for several years. This starting in around 1986, 87. And um, um, Murray Murray transitioned out of the band back and forth a little bit. We had a fellow named Tom McGuigan who was a good friend of Kevin Venny, he's a bass player, a really good bass player. And again, he had to sort of do the homework, but he he, he picked it up quite well. So mm-hmm. that was you know, sort of the, the bass playing part of it was covered by Kevin or excuse me by uh, Tom McGuigan and, and Murray Nose and Chuck off and on for the next several years mm-hmm. and um, and Kevin was drummer pretty much uh, there is a time by um, oh when is it um, where a fellow named a really good drummer too named Joe Ream who who would take it sort of like I would have because it wasn't a lucrative gig yeah. right yeah. Um, so people drop in and out. Dropped it's in and not, out. It's exactly. not something you can sustain for too long. Yeah, and yeah. so the, Joe Ream could could cover off a bunch of gigs on drums, and or, and or Kevin would. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it'd be a stretch where like Joe Ream might be the drummer for the next six months or something like mm-hmm. that. But really good, really good cat and really good player. Um, I was really fortunate that way. And um, eventually, I switched guitar players. I ended up going to. Um, uh, hiring a guy from London, Ontario, was originally from Ward, Manitoba, named J.P. LePage, who mm-hmm. I, I saw at a jams. We used to play a six-nighter at the Fire Hall in London, mm-hmm. and you also played a Saturday matinee. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. And uh, um, but it was a really good sort of apprenticeship in the Blues University, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially the accommodations as they were <laughs> above the bar. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, I spotted JP there and a really great singer besides guitar player. And um, he took over from Doc in 1990, I think, right in there, mm-hmm. 89-90. And uh, that was the quartet pretty yeah. much with either, um, like I say, oh, and then Greg Cox. Okay, so now I'm Yeah, I was going to say, because I know Greg yeah. was in there at some point. Greg comes in around 1989-90. Tom yeah. Wigan leaves, I think he, um, and we got Greg. And... Uh, Joe Ream, Greg would be a you know an oft-used rhythm section. Greg all the time though. Greg, yeah, yeah. Greg, Greg was like in a sense the last bass player I had, and mm-hmm. he was in the band for several years. Mm-hmm. And um, that takes us up right to 1983. It, I mean, I should throw in a little um, sort of footnote. I decided to open up a bar. Okay. In 1991. All with, right. And uh, I owned more than 50 percent of it. And JP LePage, my guitar player, was uh, an investor too. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that bar called? It was called Fanny Starlight Lounge. Okay. Yeah, which became the pterodactyl and several years later. I don't know if you before know that. Time, yeah. That's before your time, too. Um, and Dean Martini's is in that location. Okay, it's not even yeah, called yeah. Dean Martini's now. Yeah, it's I, know, I don't know what you're talking about. You know the yeah, space I'm talking about, space, on Pitt yeah. Street. Mm-hmm. 53 Pitt Street. Mm-hmm. 
East. And um, that um, it was actually a really great time. I mean, the business was tough, the business end of it. Um, but we had a great reputation, and I think I think we deserved it. I mean, we um, we booked uh, recording acts from around North America, mm-hmm. blues mostly. Sometimes blues meets roots kind of thing, but yeah. mostly blues. Um, you know, and from great like a Grammy Award winner like Coco Taylor, which wow. played our club. Yeah, so um, Champion Jack Dupree, who had who had moved in exile to Europe, like a lot of jazz musicians did. Mm-hmm. You know, escape racism mm-hmm. uh, in the 50s or 60s and he was uh, he played three dates in North America before he died and our club was one of them oh wow yeah um, and uh, not that we you know nobody knew he was about to pass away but he was mm-hmm. an older you know was in his 80s mm-hmm. um, but incredible uh, talent and legendary blues kind of New Orleans horror house yeah. barrel yeah. house piano player like incredible talent and, yeah it's got that swing yeah <laughs> had everything and yeah. um and we booked, you know, we booked recording acts. We usually at least once a month we had a recording act coming from as far as away as you know, Dallas and mm-hmm. Austin, Texas, or wherever. Mm-hmm. And we got to back up our, our band could perform as as a. We did this with Pine Top Perkins, uh, speaking of legendary piano players, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so we could fly in. You know, I remember going to Metro Airport and picking up Pine mm-hmm. Pine Top, and then our band could could perform as his rhythm section and yeah you know that you know yeah it's a nice um, little perk of being the owners <laughs> yeah um but we also still kept going out on the road mm-hmm. when we could it sort of curtailed that a little bit because the that business requires a real yeah, hands-on yeah. but it's interesting because it, it's one of those things you do as an artist i think where it's like okay the, the art itself isn't making that much money so what can we do that's art adjacent you know that that uh, can maybe help you out in some ways. Uh, yeah, that that might fund it, and so and that's that's good. I mean, owning a music venue is yeah. one way to do that. And it also was again sort of um, Windsor's hadn't had on a consistent basis. I, I remember seeing John Lee Hooker in Windsor when I mm-hmm. I think before I, geez, I don't I don't think I was a musician. Maybe I was just starting to play harmonic at home. Um, so people would bring in some really great artists from time to time as a one off, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a bar venue you know like a nightclub venue that was booking it on a consistent basis yeah. I, you know i looked at models for what i was doing like this like pop the gator in kitchener or the soup kitchen in detroit mm-hmm. uh, the place called sully's in dearborn was had a really great uh, booking policy mm-hmm. and uh and further field out to ann arbor and further west and further north and east and all that mm-hmm. so um i wanted windsor to have that experience too almost from a you know just being a citizen of yeah, yeah, living you just, here you just want to bring it here yeah, yeah. and uh, again it was sort of that educating the audience kind of thing too mm-hmm. and and yeah um so i did that for a couple of years and that actually brings me just much to the end of of, of the windsor dukes mm-hmm. um i found that there was like anything there's cycles of things and i think that that sort of mid 80s where where almost the world was really, you know, examining closely, a lot more closely and in a good way, supporting venues like the one I had. Mm-hmm. I was talking to even my the fellow the folks that I knew in all those other venues and things were starting to wane. Yeah. The audience yeah. wasn't as big. Or, you know, they had nights where they lost a lot of money on an act because mm-hmm. the audience wasn't showing up. Things people's tastes were changing. Yeah. And uh things go in cycles. So that sort of did that to our band too. And and I got out of the bar. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to to sell my shares in the bar and get out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
at that time, I was, you know, Gordy and I become, it's really kind of odd in a way because Gordy moved to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had moved to Toronto six, seven years earlier, but we became closer friends. Yeah, after the, after the Windsor Dukes thing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so he just talked to me on the phone about like one day, but like, hey, so what's shaking? And I said, uh, I think I'm going to go back and get, go back into the day job world. You know, it's just music has sort of run its course for me for what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And he had started Big Sugar at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say because you weren't you weren't in the original Big Sugar line. No, right? I wasn't. They'd yeah. already Gordy had already put a one eponymously titled record called Big Sugar. Mm-hmm. I played on the next record uh, just as a guest musician. Yeah, uh, called Five Hundred Pounds. Um, I played a little bit, and um, but like I say, we're I mean that's probably why I was even on the you know we're just really good friends even though we live two hundred forty miles apart. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just that was kind of interesting. He just said, "Well, that's not right." Yeah, you should be playing music full time as well. It's nice to say I should be, but it's not <laughs> a lot of people. A lot of people, a lot of people should, be. should, but I'm, it ain't working out, you know. And it, and it's I feel like I've been put through the ring of running a bar too. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he just said, "Well, I'm playing. Big Sugar's playing in London, Ontario this weekend at Call the Office." Yeah, still, still there, it's still there, isn't it? <laughs> and I went. I didn't. Even, I never even heard of Call the Office because I was mm. into the. You know, I knew where the fire hall was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that exactly. Kind of thing. I wasn't, and, and so. Um, he said, "Just bring your bring your harps, bring your horn, and sit in on some songs." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Okay." And that was the summer. Actually, that was the summer of '94. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just just stuck around. I stuck around. <laughs> I wasn't like I was kind of this. I would sit in Monitor World, you know, yeah. or anything like that, and I go up on like eight or ten songs a night. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like by the end of the summer, it was like he and his manager looked around. Wow, he's still here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I missed out on that summer is there was a trip, uh, a West, um, like I was doing shows in the Ontario region and in Quebec, mm-hmm. but they went out West on a tour, Big Sugar did, and just, their budget just couldn't afford another musician, yeah. you know. And uh, but they decided in the fall of '94 to, you know, off, already offer me full time. Like you want to just do this, you're. You can, this is your thing now. This is your thing. I, yeah. I'd already started doing some recording with the band. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing that was, you know, but for a soon-to-be record and things like that. And, and and then eventually, even by the end of the summer, I was playing on every song. I had mm-hmm. something to do on every song. With So I was playing uh, melodica or I was playing lap steel guitar of all things i mean <laughs> oh, wow. just anything um just i did it. notice that you like you do a lot in that band like when i look at i remember looking at the liner notes of one of the albums i forget which one and it was like there, you were on so many different things there was like keyboards and saxophone and harmonica yeah and that's like... true right penny whistle or <laughs> yeah 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 i mean in one yeah and but i wasn't like that in the first i guess what i'm getting at is in the first month or, or mo- several months and then it just became uh you know i mean Otherwise, you're just standing there. <laughs> yeah. And also, I, you know what? It's funny. That's, it's my initial, you know, initial experience in singing harmony. I've been the lead singer in a blues band. And, mm-hmm. and in blues anyways, even if you got two people can sing in the band like I did when JP was in the band, um, JP LePage, you know, there wasn't harmony. It's just not part yeah. of the, of the not idiom. Not really, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it was, uh, which was actually, I kind of really started to dig. I, it was just, it was again, learning something new in music that I, you know. And it's a totally different way of singing. Because oh, like, yeah. for me, it's about, most of the time anyway, it's about trying to match the tone of whoever's leading, right? right. And it's a very different way of, of exercising your vocals. Like from I've, lead singing. Oh, yeah. Man. And so I've been doing it in Dime Hotel, and it's really the first time that I've had to consistently do it. And you, you learn quickly because you sound terrible if you don't. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Let alone just, you know, singing 
the harmonically correct notes. You're right. Yeah. You get your tone with the lead singer's voice. There, mm-hmm. there has to be a blend there. It's got a mesh. Yeah. You yeah. got to know what volume to sing at. You got to yeah. know all that stuff. It's a very different way of singing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that was that was kind of uh, you know I I just I enjoyed it. I mean I've always just liked music. I mean as much as I love blues music, again whatever that's under that umbrella. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, and my taste had actually really would really evolving back then anyway when I joined Big Sugar. I certainly had to learn a lot about reggae music, mm-hmm. uh, being a member of Big Sugar. And uh, um, but that's where that's the summer it started '94. Mm-hmm. I joined the band. It, yeah, then I've been in it ever since. It's funny because I, I grew up not in Windsor. I grew up in in Coburg, Ontario, and I remember uh, when Turn the Lights On mm. hit. And for me, that was my introduction to to what Big Sugar was. It's like hmm. you know, it suddenly everything just—I mean, who knows what the hell I was actually listening to back then? But but I remember that song very clearly, and and th- and like really digging it, and going up buying the record, and like wow. huh. and like really being into Big Sugar for a little while. And then I come down here, and it's like, oh yeah, no, Kelly Hoppy, he's he's in Big Sugar. It's like what? <laughs> I remember the first time I heard that, it kind of blew my mind a little bit because you were like the first big time musician that I that I met. Who I could be like, oh, I'm friends with a guy in Big Sugar, and so right. I was a little bit. I remember. I don't know if you know this. I was a little bit starstruck oh. for a little while because I was. I was a very, very big fan of Big Sugar when I was you oh, know, in, never, high, I, in high school. And, I don't know if you've ever told me that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's funny. I mean, I always find that, that makes me think about something. So I'm going a bit of a tangent, maybe. Oh, that's but, fine. But Windsor is a really great place to be. Um, sort of treated as you always were yeah. and always will Nobody's be. Nobody's going to treat you like a star here. No. I, and, <laughs> and if you start acting like one, it's not a good yeah, thing. Yeah, and it's even going to make it worse. <laughs> and and I used to notice, not that, you know, the guys, the guys because otherwise we were a Toronto-based band, meaning Gordy, mm-hmm. Gary Lowe, um, any one of our drummers, at the, you know, most of them lived in the Toronto area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Friendly, who's now in the band, um, you know, they all live in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Gordy doesn't anymore, but he, he certainly was then. Mm-hmm. And... Certainly, I would be, you know, if we would do press in Toronto, you know, mm-hmm. and the English recording industry of Canada is in Toronto. So mm-hmm. when I would be in Toronto doing all the things, you know, either going to, you know, record store promotions, any any number of things and radio, lots of radio and lots of TV. Mm-hmm. And certainly, and I, you know, I would have where I'd be there for several days, you mm-hmm. know, either staying with Gordy or staying at a hotel or whatever. But seeing how... The fan base, and even in the GTA, if we go do gigs anywhere, you know, from Burlington all the way around to Oshawa, Ajax, or wherever, mm-hmm. they, which is great, the fans were really rabid and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, wow, that's, you're so-and-so in big, you know. Yeah. And seeing the guys in the band get that, you know, mm-hmm. they, Gary would talk about, we'd go to the grocery store and people would go, hey, man, and, <laughs> you know, and then Canadians are pretty, pretty, yeah. pretty low-key anyway. But, yeah. but in Windsor, I mean... I don't. I mean, I didn't go around telling people I was in Big Sugar. It didn't, it didn't occur to me that I would wouldn't mm-hmm. want to do that. Um, and regardless, it was you know you're just the same old Joe, just a guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Actually, you know what? What else is funny too is my my current drummer in, in Diane Motel, Caleb Ferruja, who who I think you know a little bit. He grew up like somewhere within a, a block of here, mm-hmm. uh, where we're at your place right now. And um, he was telling me this story a few weeks ago about how him and his friends were also obsessed with Big Sugar. Hmm. And they used to, like... Like, he's going to kill me for telling you this, but they used to, like, follow you around. Really? <laughs> because they would hear you playing saxophone or harmonica on your porch. 
Oh yeah, and, or, or it sounded like it was on a, on the porch. I was probably in the house. Yeah, yeah, wherever you could hear it. So <laughs> yeah. that's how close they were that they could hear you doing this from yeah. wherever they were. And so they would come over, yeah, and they would like hide in the bushes and like watch you play or listen to you play or whatever. And then they they became like to the point where they were like young kids. Like, yeah, Caleb's yeah. a few years younger than I am. So this was if this was the the mid to late nineties that he would have been a pretty young kid. And you know he would like he'd see you leave and go to the store and he'd like follow you down to the store and like, watch you buy toothbrushes at Shoppers Drug Mart or something. Was, That's pretty funny. <laughs> he was telling me these stories about how like his him and his friends were sort of obsessed that this rock star lived like right there and you could hear him playing his music all the time and right right and it was really I think was, the way he tell the way he tells it it sounds like it was pretty formative for him it really <laughs> made him want to also be a musician. Oh and, like, well, that's good. Yeah, so, I'm all for that. Like yeah. anything that makes people. I mean. Uh, you know, certainly biased, but I love yeah. I love music and I love to mm-hmm. see people uh, yeah. take it on in any way, whether it's even on an amateur level as a hobby or whatever, yeah. because it's so enriching, you know, mm-hmm. to, to one's life. Um, that's pretty funny. Yeah, but yeah, I, I just, so I used to find that like a, I'd go home to Windsor, obviously, is where I lived, and, and uh, off tour or even after doing press junket stuff in Toronto, and just great to be who you are. Yeah. You know? I mean, well, what There's else? No would you, what here. else? Yeah, well, yeah. What else would you want to be but who you are? But you know, I remember once somebody stopped me in the liquor store, liquor, and it was a young woman with her parents who probably they knew me just as you know mm-hmm. growing up here. But anyway, and she was oh, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I signed something, you know, yeah. And my, I think my wife was with me at the time. She said, "Wow, what was that?" I said. What? This happens all the time to the <laughs> yeah. guys in Toronto. Gordy will go to a grocery snow night grocery store at two in the morning and grab some supplies for the kids or something, yeah. you know, and somebody will stop him. And, that, and again, to say you're stopped, I mean, boy, you'd rather be recognized than not, right? I mean, she's, yeah, there's a modicum yeah. of success going yeah, with what you're doing. Just, there's a level of it where it's probably annoying, but at, at, I'm sure at that it, level, yeah. Canadian indie rockers or whatever, it's not really going to... Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually just kind of nice to be noticed, but it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just... But I used to find that, I guess what I'm getting at too, or I haven't really stated it that well, that in Toronto, whew, you know, sort of the 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 rock press, if I could call it that. I don't know. It's some people are there to, you know, like in any big city, you know, say it happens in New York or London, England or whatever, you sort of get more attention than you should mm-hmm. and it might affect how you feel yeah. about yourself or it might affect your ego. Right? Yeah, yeah, it might blow up the head a little bit yeah. too much. Yeah. And and that's just human nature, but mm-hmm. it didn't happen. It doesn't happen in winter. It's really great. So That's yeah. good. So uh I mean, this is a podcast about songwriting, and mm. and uh, you, you don't you don't do you write in Big Sugar, or is it just sort of like a? I really don't. I mean, I did. Mostly Gordy's. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't well, write with Gordy that. No, I haven't you, for a long time. You are time. you are a songwriter, though. I mean, you have to Mr. some degree. Mr. Chill, Mr. Chill and the Witnesses. Yeah. Uh, you've, how, there's just is just the one record, or is just the one just record. The one I mean, record? I've written songs since then, but yeah, and I I think it sort of comes from where I come from musically uh, when I write my own stuff is what the way you described it's going to have a lot more of a folk inflection in a mm-hmm. country gospel country gospel and yeah. which it just happens not to sort of fit the big sugar yeah, yeah. you know it's well, not so it's, it is very very different and, and mm-hmm. it's uh it surprised me when i first heard you like probably playing at sky lounge or something with greg right. yeah i mean like this is so completely different from the stuff that i would have expected coming out of you right yeah i, I see mm-hmm. why you would say it. Yeah, yeah or why we might think that yeah mm-hmm. and it just you know, but it seemed to fit you more, is what I mean. I mean, it seemed to mm. seem to be more of an expression of who you were as a person. Yeah, getting I feel, to know you. Yeah, I, I feel like it. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. everybody wants to be as honest as 
they can be to themselves mm-hmm. or what they do, or it just is going to happen anyway. It comes out the way all the yeah. things that influence you. You don't even know most of the time. It's just right. happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, my songwriting, as meager as it is, does, you know, have a very different tack mm-hmm. than the, than you one would see in Big Sugar, that's for sure. So, obviously, being in Big Sugar kind of limits your time, but is that something you'd ever want to revisit? Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, I'm always, I think I looked on, I don't know why I keep things there, but on my desktop, <laughs> on my laptop. <laughs> Top. That's where I keep my stuff too. Yeah, okay. just like the <laughs> lyric folder, right? Yeah. And I look in there and go, how I didn't realize I was putting I'm not saying there's you know, there's war and peace in there, but mm-hmm. um yeah, there's is I guess it's that's the way it goes. You go, Oh, I should really start thinking about putting this to music or, mm-hmm. or maybe collaborating with somebody that helped me do that. Mm-hmm. And then I don't. <laughs> I mean, I I really I've you, done. You've a f- got it. You got a pretty good gig going right now with with Big well, Sugar being back and. Yeah, I mean, I find what I'm doing. I mean, it is what I'm doing this these days. Is Big Sugar's really busy, mm-hmm. as you you know, and so that's keeping keeping me busy. You know, maybe taking me away from those kinds of things. Even though I know a lot of people that are at least as busy as I am, and they still write. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty envious of those people, um, and they still write and maybe record, but also. Um, you know, I do a lot of session work. I'm doing more mm-hmm. session work as every year goes on. Yeah, and that's the advantage of, of playing the instrument that you do. I mean, harmonica is something that you can uh-huh. superimpose onto almost anything if if you're. If yeah, you're doing I, it right. I yeah, and I get some saxophone gigs, but they're mm-hmm. I would say they're predominantly harmonica. And um, uh, in terms of session work, I get saxophone gigs. And um, I even have a project now where I'm going over to um, I'm going over to Belgium in. Not to do with Big Sugar, but to go over and play with a guitar player uh, that we've got to know through Big Sugar. I've got to know him, and our whole band has. Mm-hmm. The band's called Trigger Finger, and they're based in Belgium. And they've brought us to Europe and taken us on tour, had us open for them. They're really popular in Europe, and we mm-hmm. just brought them to Canada. Now the guitar player wants to—he's bringing—he's the frontman singer, it's a trio, mm-hmm. and he wants to do a bunch of live shows while they're taking a whole year to make an album. Mm-hmm. And um, so he just wants, he's got the itch to play. So, you know, I've got got things like, I've got stuff that, yeah, I I mean, you know, I'm really blessed, but I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've got a lot on the, on the go that way. Um, I play still a little bit locally. I, Mm -hmm. because with Greg, especially with Greg. Yeah. Which I really love to do. Yeah. He's such a good player. It's ridiculous how, how solid he is. Doesn't even look like he's trying either when he's playing guitar. Just, he's one of those guys that it's just, it's, it's like, he's barely even paying attention yet. You get these great you know, great riffs and he's such yeah. a solid player. Yeah, that's a really, it's funny. I hadn't really, you put it into words as something I hadn't really mm-hmm. done myself. Uh, but that's exactly the way you're right. He It looks effortless, which naturally tells you the work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anybody. I didn't mean to make it sound like no, I No, and I know you don't mean that. And it yeah. just, I'm taking guitar lessons from him now. I'm just, yeah. you know, scratching the surface of that instrument. And yeah, I love playing with him. I think he's a real hidden gem in Canada. Yeah, like for sure. Greg and I did some duo gigs, uh, you know, that were in conjunction with uh, the time we had the witnesses where promoters flew us out to do a show in in Edmonton, for example, that I remember doing in Calgary and stuff like that. And I I was so thrilled because Greg has never really done much touring. Mm -hmm. And I was putting him in front of people that had never heard him before. And uh, I remember in interviews out there, too, I was telling people, you know, he's a real hidden gem because Mm -hmm. it's his breadth of knowledge of so many different idioms yeah um on the guitar <clears throat> you know 
there's not many people I've come across in my 20 years playing around Canada that plays mm-hmm. guitar as well as he does. And, yeah, he's really right. And empathetic, sympathetic, all those kinds of things mm-hmm. too. It serves the song, doesn't go overboard. Yeah, yeah. He's not a show off. No. Show, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me mm-hmm. kind of player. Yeah. Um, and uh, yet, yeah, he'll play some things that'll just, you know, really mm-hmm. strike you in the right way emotionally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we don't get to do that as much right now. Um, it sort of comes and goes. I mean, last year mm-hmm. we played a little bit. Um, but uh, my schedule takes me out of town a lot, so that kind of yeah. interrupts that. I know we've been trying to get it on the on the podcast for a few months now, but keep going out on tour. So yeah, yeah. It'll get you in the winter when you're well, when you're more doing stationary. a little bit of hibernating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you want to play a song? I guess I'd better say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to. No, I mean it's it's it and it's uh, for your, for anybody listening. It's uh, I speaking. To, Greg's not here. I'm going to be playing by myself. Obviously, by myself <laughs> playing guitar and harmonica and stuff. I've heard you play guitar a number of times that you'd have nothing to be ashamed oh, of. Oh yeah, you say, no, let, <laughs> let's see how this goes. Let's let's, okay. let's do it that way. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, I'll do something for you. I'm actually going to do a song called uh, Ugly Way to Lose that uh, recorded a few years ago when we put out the Witnesses record. And speaking of Patrick Ballantyne, I uh, co-wrote this with him and uh, uh, it goes something like this. Well, he proved that he was willing such an able man And he could do such thrilling things With his strong and able hand But did he tell you everything Upon which you could choose Between a sweet short victory And an ugly way to lose Well, I knew that man who was years ago We had a best pocket knife to look at him, you'd never know he had a loving wife. But you were never fooled at all, no. You were not confused. And one day he fell on that blade, it was an ugly way to lose. An ugly way to lose. Oh, nothing's ever perfect, no end. Nothing's ever free But I have paid years later For causing misery The truth is you might carry on And never have to pay your dues But when that reaper comes to town It's an ugly way to lose An ugly way to lose Short-term satisfaction sure has its appeal Especially when our secrets so seldom are revealed In a bit of random pleasure you might chase away those blues When that light shines on you it's an ugly way to lose An ugly way to lose An ugly way to 